Welcome to Alameda Community Radio's News and Views. I'm your host, Susan Gallimore, and I'll be with you for this hour-long view into the workings and goings-on in our city of Alameda. It's 10 years this week since four hijacked civilian airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. There are many often conflicting narratives about what happened that day. How did this attack plan develop undetected for so long? Why were warnings ignored by the newly installed Bush administration? Was there a conspiracy or many intersecting conspiracies behind these attacks? What facts are not being shared with the American people? Reuters reported this week that, quote, the vast majority of the 9-11 Commission's investigative records remain sealed at the National Archives in Washington, even though the Commission had directed the archives to make most of the material public in 2009. This despite the Commission, formerly known as the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, established by Congress in late 2002 to investigate the events leading up to the attacks, the pre-attack effectiveness of intelligence agencies, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the government's emergency response. Assistant Director Matt Fulham of the Archive Center for Legislative Affairs, which has oversight of the commission documents, told Reuters that more than a third of the material has been reviewed for possible release, but many of those documents have been withheld or heavily redacted, and the released material includes documents that already were in the public domain, such as press articles. That's from Reuters. Now, with me today to share their story of 9-11 are Barry Schutz. He was an academic, educator, and an Africa specialist working at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the time, and his wife, Karen Lee, both of whom made dramatic decisions on and after that day. They would marry, leave Washington, D.C., and move to Alameda, California. It's my pleasure to share Barry Schutz and Karen Lee's story today. Barry Schutz, welcome. Thank you very much. And Karen Lee. Welcome, Karen. Thank you very much. Karen Lee lived in Georgetown within view of the Pentagon, and she describes her day. Tuesday morning... I went to the Safeway at 9 o'clock, and somebody said that there was a plane that crashed into the World Trade Center. And I said, that's impossible, (laughs) because I knew that building. I knew people that worked there. I had lived right near the exit to the path and had tried to sell paintings for their art collection because they had a fabulous art collection. So I had been in and out of that building. I knew that there would be millions of people there. Um, Fortunately, the plane's hit too early because people get to work sort of late in New York and had it been an hour later there could have been 50,000 people so I just thought that that can't be Um, so I went home and I was all by myself in my house in Washington and Barry whom I didn't really know that well but we were getting along very well was in California and I couldn't get through to him I couldn't get through to anybody there was just me and my dog So I turned on the television, and they were just showing this slow, interminable um, fire with lots of people talking. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to be with a group of people. I don't want to be all by myself. So I took the dog out for a walk, and I lived just up from the Potomac River in Washington. And unbeknownst to me, they had given an order that the streets were to be cleared and nobody was supposed to be around. But I didn't hear that part. We went down to the Potomac, 
And there were like two people there, and I couldn't understand where everybody was. Why wasn't everybody else wanting to be with other people at this terrible time? So the dog and I looked across the river, and there was the Pentagon um, in flames. And what you could see was this great cloud of smoke, which everybody's seen on television. I mean, I knew it was the beginning of, of something terrible and new and different. And it was like when you have a car accident and there's nobody there and there's no music and nobody claps and nothing happens. You just have the accident and there you are. So there I was. And there was this cataclysm and I had nobody to share it with except a dog and two guys on bikes who were kind of equally befuddled. We watched for a while and then I thought, well, this is so terrible, I better do something important or meaningful, or good. So I took the dog back to the house and gave him some water, and I still didn't want to turn on the television because it just seemed so secondhand, and here I was having the experience firsthand. I wanted to actually be a part. So I went to the Red Cross, and there was this huge line of people, and it was a hot day, and it was sunny, and we were all waiting to give blood because they had said that there would be a need for blood. And after a couple hours of waiting in line, they sent us all home. And they said they had enough blood. But I, I realized later that they didn't need blood. And I also heard that there were battalions of, of doctors and nurses outside of St. Vincent's Hospital in New York, which was one of the closer hospitals to, to the World Trade Center. And again, they, there was nobody to patch up because everything had been destroyed. You were able eventually to contact Barry? No, not for days and days and days. Um, phones didn't work. Planes couldn't go in and out. Nothing worked. I was in Los Angeles uh, attending to some uh, matters with regard to my daughter who was living in Los Angeles at the time. I had this, uh, this great sense of guilt that I wasn't in Washington when this happened. Uh, what happened is I woke up, and of course it was Pacific time, I heard the telephone ring continually in the house where I was staying, but I couldn't understand why the, the phone was ringing incessantly. So I then jumped in. After I got dressed, I jumped into my car to go down to Westwood uh, Village, which is West Los Angeles near UCLA. Uh, what happened was I turned on the radio, and they start talking in this monotone about the burning of the one tower of the of the World Trade Center. And, of course, then at that point, it was gripping. And then I went to a television with a friend uh, because this event obviously was changing everything. And I had all kinds of thoughts that went through my head about, is this a, an odd event? Is this uh, an organized event? And my thought was, if it's not Muslims, is this also... Uh, carried out by uh, domestic terrorists, as the Oklahoma City bombing was. I, I just didn't preclude anything. And at the time, I was working at the State Department in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, and I had seen some of the uh, conversations that were intercepted by U.S. intelligence that occurred months before about bin Laden uh, and about he being an expert in uh, building because his family were construction engineers. And there, there were two people that were uh, conversing uh, who were making reference to uh, Osama bin Laden's expertise 
in buildings, and he thought that was the place to go with regard to a, an event. There's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories about what happened. Was there explosives put in the walls? Do you have any insight into that vis-a-vis -vis the bin Laden construction expertise? I may have ideas or insights or heard things said mm -hmm. on the media, uh, but at no time did, at that moment did I consider this anything other than uh, Al-Qaeda attack or a domestic terrorist uh, event. Mm -hmm. um, and when, of course, Al-Qaeda immediately claimed responsibility for it, uh, that, of course, said it in a different way. I didn't have enough knowledge of what was really happening on the ground since I was on the, you know, here on the West Coast. And later when I got back, I didn't have enough time to really look back upon 9-11. I just knew that Karen had been very, really shaken by it and what she had seen. And it obviously was changing our, our lives. But then the anthrax scare came, and I worked in the State Department. The anthrax scare was about a week later, Yes, right? about a three, two or three weeks later. Okay. And I thought for sure this was an, an extension of what had happened uh, on 9-11. But they found first uh, anthrax at the State Department post office, which was out in Virginia. Uh, I was working at the main building in D.C., and then they found some uh, in the building, and there was a postal center for internal mail just down the hall. There was a claim that there was, there was a letter there with containing anthrax uh, or some powder. It was some powder. And we didn't know if it was anthrax. I had to wind up taking 60 days of Cipro uh, because I might have been, and I thought that I had been exposed to the anthrax. That had a great deal to do with my wanting to get the hell out of Washington, D.C. So talk about how the two of you made contact. Uh, must have been a few days later. Oh, I don't remember. It took forever. I um, think about three or four days later, we finally were able to connect by phone. Okay, and, and then when did you go back? I had to wait a week. I had no business in Southern California other than attending to my, my daughter's concerns. So it was sitting and waiting. What really surprised me, immediately upon my return, there was an event that was sponsored by the U.S. Army. That was um, I'm an Africa specialist, and I was about Africa, and there were some very well-known, prominent Africanist academics that were invited to this meeting. It was within four or five days after uh, they had start, resumed flights, and the Army decided to have this meeting. It was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, as though nothing had happened. What do you make of that? I thought it was perhaps the military trying to just put things into a, a regular routine and, uh, as quickly as possible. So I've thought about that many times. Uh, I was really surprised by the fact that they were flying Saudis out of the United States when the air was cleared of all aircraft. The uh, executive office, which was at that time manned by one, one Dick Cheney, uh, was flying Saudis out of the country, including bin Laden's relatives. I want to come back to that and have more of a discussion about that. And I want to return to the personal story because you, um, Barry, and Karen at this point decided to make a major change, which is to come out to California. Well, before that, uh, Karen made her mind about <laughs> something else. Go ahead. Well, people in New Jersey go to Wall Street to work, and people in Westchester go to Madison Avenue to work. So, And I had lived in New Jersey for years, and there were a lot of people who knew people who 
wondered about people whom I knew, and I was spent a lot of time on the phone trying to find out who had been harmed and who had not. And in fact, there was a little boy who was grown up, but he was, to me, a little boy down the street who, who was Cantor Fitzgerald traitor, and he was killed. I spent a lot of time trying to find out um, what was going on in New Jersey from my friends up there. And then when Barry finally got back, I was sort of devastated by all this death. And I, Barry and I had had this casual relationship, I guess, but it got much more intense because I kind of realized that at any moment it could all be over. And that speeded our relationship up. And we got married about a year later, and Barry very much wanted to get out of Washington I didn't want to get out of Washington because I wasn't all that scared by it. I just thought it was horrible, not not like something that was personally threatening. But he really wanted to get out of Washington, and I could see that if we were going to be together, it would be nice to start a new life from scratch. So eventually we started looking at real estate in California and ended up here in Alameda. Let me tell you what I was concerned about. In the summer of 2002, I was uh, teaching and managing courses at the Foreign Service Institute out in Arlington, Virginia. I would take the shuttle from the State Department out to the Foreign Service Institute campus. And as I was waiting for the shuttle to go back to the State Department after teaching a course, one of my old uh, colleagues, uh, who was uh, an Army lieutenant colonel at that time, I not only knew him from... Uh, the Department of Defense, I, but he had studied at the University of Utah and had taken classes with a very close friend of mine who taught there. So I'd had a, a, a fairly casual relationship with him. He wasn't a fan, fan of Israel. Uh, he thought the uh, Arab-speaking countries were being, you know, and the Palestinians were being robbed. And I had no trouble with that. But as he gets off the shuttle, he says to me, well, we're going to Iraq. Now, this is 2002. What do you mean we're going to Iraq? He said, well, we're offloading uh, in Qatar right now, which is one of, one of the main bases there. We're going to be offloading military supplies there from now till the time we, we go in. Now, this was almost a year before Bush claims that he decided to go into Iraq. And so that bothered me a lot. I knew that we were going into Iraq. And I was following the news, which was, oh, wait, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But I knew we were because of what this guy had told me. And uh, I'd had enough of Washington. And I was working at the State Department. I had actually was officially retired, and they were keeping me on a contract. Uh, and I enjoyed my work there. And I'm mainly a Southern Africa specialist and was their Zimbabwe guy. So I had a lot of interest in what I was doing. Uh, having taught in, in Zimbabwe uh, at one time and, and following it from that time on. Uh, my desire to get out it was related to uh, a lot of other issues, but primarily it was, I knew we were going into Iraq. There were terrorists around. This was Washington, D.C. And in fact, after we had bought the house in, our, in Alameda and we were ready to move, about three weeks before, all you saw were helicopters uh, patrolling the skies in Washington, D.C. You could cut the tension with a knife. There, we hadn't gone yet into Iraq. We went into Iraq a week before we left for California. It wasn't, you know, I left the State Department because I disagreed with their policy, but it fit in. 
And, and I really was concerned, and I didn't want to have any part of D.C. after that. The issue of leaving Washington, um, that was kind of personal. I'm from Washington, so it has a tie on me. The relationship with Barry was rushing along. It was rushing along. We got married in 2002. Correct. Right. And, but that was a precipitating fact. Well, yeah, it made me kind of think life is short. This is a really, really wonderful man, and why don't I just take advantage of what's good? I could have dithered had there not been a precipitating factor. But we made the decision, and we got out, I think it was the night of the war. We had already gone in. remember watching the, quote, shock and awe, end quote, on CNN while we were still in Washington. And so, but it was right, right after that that we had left because the, the house was ready to be occupied. My son went into the military in 1999, and it wasn't something that I really wanted him to do. He had been in college. And to tag on to your comment about how things were already proceeding and things were, you know, being unloaded in Qatar, um, my son and I remember we walked along the marina. It used to be the old uh, Chevys. You remember that was on, yes, the, on yes, the estuary? Yes. That was one of his favorite places when he came. And we'd go there and we were walking along mm -hmm. the marina. And um, he was telling me the same thing. We're packing up and getting ready to go. And I was still a little incredulous. You know, I said, surely this can't be happening. I mean, this means there's going to be a war. He was there in the army. You know, he was in the 82nd at that time. He would know. Yeah he was doing every day was getting prepared for a war. Exactly. Well, you're one of the few people that knew what was going to happen because of you, you had a connection with the military, which was even closer to mine. I was, I didn't actually believe it. I thought we were just doing a threatening posture, and I actually did not believe that we would actually go in, invade, and start to shoot, and start to occupy, and start to kill, and, you know, be killed. The information that I'd gotten in 2002, you know, we are going in. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how. You're listening to Alameda Community Radio's News and Views. I'm Susan Gallimore, and this is our second Alameda Community Radio show. You can download and listen to our first show, an interview with City of Alameda Treasurer Kevin Kennedy and the City Auditor Kevin Kearney, and you can listen to that from our blog, which is alameda-communit-radio.com blogspot.org. That's alameda-communit-radio.blogspot.org. When I say communit, it's community without the Y. Long story behind that, but that's what it is, alameda-communit-radio-blogspot.org. If you have comments on today's show or want to suggest interesting stories for me to cover, send an email to Alameda Community Radio, spelled out, all one word, Alameda Community Radio at gmail.com and address the email to me, Susan Gallimore. Now, Alameda residents Barry Schutz and Karen Lee departed Washington, D.C. after the events of September 11, 2001. They married and they moved to Alameda. I asked how each viewed the plethora of conspiracy theories that hatched after the attacks. I listen to them. You know, it's, they do say that it's impossible for a building to crash the way that the World Trade Center collapsed like an accordion, but I don't know if it's possible. I don't know enough about the physics of it. If there were an easily transparent conspiracy theory, it would be people would be writing about it, although they do tend to get shut up very quickly, I have noticed. I don't know. We go from one conspiracy to another. I mean, it's very appealing to think that there's a reason for something 
because we can't stand there being no reason. My instincts tell me that this was a uh, an administration that came in probably less prepared for uh, dealing with emergencies than any other. Uh, four years on, they had a, a, a devastation of New Orleans and Katrina, uh, and they couldn't deal with that either. Gives me some thought that this, that was similar to 2001. Cheney was in charge at that time. I don't think there's, especially after his latest book, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, he had sent Bush to his, his ranch uh, for a period of almost two months, and Bush was formally still getting briefed, but he wasn't, I don't think, in the loop as far as decision-making was concerned. Uh, and the events of uh, on the day, on 9-11, uh, indicate that there were all kinds of uh, air exercises uh, operating and, and being executed in the United States that were keeping any attack aircraft from going after these airliners. There was one airliner, the one that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, that was in fact uh, a rogue airliner. Somebody consciously did not made the decision not to send out aircraft. These are strange, unexplained aspects of the whole thing. And, of course, Bush's and Condi Rice's inability to comprehend the seriousness of the very things that I had been hearing about the determination of al-Qaeda to attack buildings. It was almost as though they were skeptical of anything the previous administration had done. It's like, oh, you guys were focusing on the wrong thing. We're going to focus on the right thing, and we're going to ignore everything that you guys took seriously. Yeah, this was, this was Dick Clark's perspective on it, the... Uh, the counterterrorism czar at the time, and who was um, had very prominent uh, counterterrorist positions in the Clinton administration, and he's become quite famous uh, in his crit- critique of of the way the administration performed in 9/11. It would seem to me that this was what you just said is has a, a lot of validity. This was the anti-Clinton. But then when you bring Cheney into it, who's um, you know, a really secretive and, um, dare I say, evil Malevolent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, person, uh, th- then you don't know what, where it ends and where it begins. I mean, you just don't. Uh, Bush became, a, uh, as they say, a dependent variable in the social sciences in all of this. And it seemed to have been, been Cheney and maybe a very few other people, Rumsfeld included, who knew what was happening and w- what, was, what was going to be carried out. What I didn't think they thought was going to happen was the aircraft going into the Pentagon. And the fact that was so unlikely that there are, there are truthers, uh, 9-11 truthers, who argued that that was uh, uh, not an aircraft that went in. This was a, an inside explosion. I can't tell you anything. Oh, an inside explosion? That's a new one on me. I've heard that it was a missile. Or, or missile. That's right. Yeah, okay. It was a missile. Excuse me. Um, I don't think you could cover that up. I, I would think that there were enough witnesses around within the Pentagon to have seen an airplane, uh, at least you know the, the components of an airplane. And it would be how that could be planted after the missile strike is beyond me, and how you could keep this a secret with as many people as work in the Pentagon uh, I just, I can't buy that. Mm. And Karen, what you saw was smoke. You, didn't, you never got close enough to see debris of any sort. No, no, billowing smoke, black at the bottom and white as it got higher. Um, but it was quite clear. Well, I knew that the Pentagon was burning because I had 
seen that on television. Um, and there was a whole lot of smoke. It wasn't like little trails. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked pretty much like the photographs did afterwards. I mean, that's where a lot of those photographs were taken. Um, you go across the Pen- across the Potomac, and then on the other side, there's trees, and then there's the Pentagon. So it's not very far. It's maybe a mile. And then let's talk a little bit now about the um, anthrax attacks, because that also is kind of a great unsolved, right? Someone has yeah. been suspected. Well, he, yes, he committed suicide, and it was very convenient for the FBI to be trailing this person when he committed suicide, and they just they deduced that he was the guy without really having any evidence. And this was the chemist, or yes. Yeah. What would be his motive? It, there, it would have to be a lone wolf type of operation again. Wouldn't there be other people who would be aware that he had he had been operating in this way? Uh, and there's never been any evidence of that. Um, the fear that I had that I was in line to take some of that anthrax, I mean, and, and ingest it, uh, because I worked at the State Department, and anybody who worked at the State Department was in trouble. In fact, there's uh, one theory that the, 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 the plane that crashed in Shanksville wasn't a- aiming at um, uh, the Capitol. He was aiming at the State Department. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, there were a lot of rumors going around about the State Department being a target. So with the State Department clearly being on the receiving end, as well as well-known Democratic uh, uh, senators like Tom Daschle and Pat Leahy, uh, it seemed to me that, that this was something coming out of a, a domestic or internal operation. And if it was military, then it may have been a very small group of people who knew what they were doing and were trying to keep the country on a, on a, a fearful awareness. And it, it, it worked with me. I mean, I'll tell you that it worked with me. But I, I still felt uncomfortable once the the Bush administration came in, and we really forget how he came into power. This, to me, was a greater event, I hate yeah, to say this, I agree. Than, than 9-11, because 9-11 never would have occurred if Al Gore had been president. He would have listened to things like uh, uh, bin Laden determined to, to, uh, to, to attack the United States. There would have been... And, Richard Clark would have been in a much more salient position within that administration. It would have been a different story. Well, you know, but this was all following something I thought would never happen in the United States, to have a Supreme Court interfere with vote counting in the state of Florida from all uh, the, the whole state and say, stop the counting, we're going to decide, and then decide that the person who was losing the vote was going to be president. Here we are now, a decade later after uh, 9/11, and we've the, the direction of the country, which was already going in a certain way after Reagan was elected, has now really swung to a direction that, well, I'm in Alameda, I'm hesitating what to say here, but um, I feel like we could have made made better decisions in the last 30 years. Yes. Yeah, so. I, I concur with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and even the Reagan presidency, there's, there is increasing information out that his uh, uh, campaign staff was in touch with uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, and his staff in Iran when we were trying to have the prisoners freed. The military carried on an operation that failed, and Carter was, of course, taking the responsibility for that. 
but that the deal that was hatched was that the the day that uh, that Reagan was sworn into the presidency, the prisoners would be released. And guess what happened? So let's talk a little bit about living in this town of um, Alameda. I, I just made reference to choosing my words carefully. This is a former military town. What I like about the town is that there is a fair amount of political diversity. There's a, what I would think of as a more extreme right, and then there's what I think of as a more moderate left. <laughs> I said moderate left. Um, but there is a, a, a nice mix. I like that. And yet... I'm still being cautious about what I say in my town. It's a reflection of how things are in this country at this point. We're cautious about what we say. Uh, Well, why are we? We're cautious because it's become a national security state. It was becoming so before 9-11. It was becoming so before Reagan became president. Uh, We were caught up in a Cold War. When the Cold War ended, I, for example, lost the the teaching position. I was teaching at an institution in Washington, D.C. There was a a peace dividend that was being talked about, and a lot of people who had wound up teaching in in Defense Department uh, institutions like myself all of a sudden wound up without jobs. Um, And I have very mixed feelings about this. But it didn't last and, uh, you know, before you know it, we weren't in a war on terror. That was Bush's term. But we were engaged in uh, dealing with terrorists after 1993 when the first bombing of the World Trade Center took place. We had uh, a new external enemy. We didn't know who it was, really. I mean, we knew it was al-Qaeda, but we, we didn't know much about al-Qaeda. Uh, And, in fact, at the Defense Intelligence Agency, they were beginning a program called Irregular Warfare, uh, in which uh, there was a study of stateless actors carrying out military operations and how the United States military was supposed to deal with it. And when was this? This was in the mid mid to late 1990s, after the attack. Yes, yes. There was some factual basis to the fact that we were dealing with stateless actors. But we were also, these are my words, and we were a de facto imperial power after the end of the Cold War and the Soviet Union broke up. It was a unipolar moment, as they say. And that's when neoconservative movement began to, to grow. And there was this great clamor for the United States taking its rightful place amongst the great imperial powers. And so that became mainstream thinking. In a lot of a lot of centers, and it uh, affected the military, and it affected the vote in 2000, which made made it closer between Bush and Gore. They, they each had you know were flawed candidates. And after 9/11, and uh, you sort of do it deductively, the thinking, you come to the realization that the neocons couldn't have asked for anything more than 9/11, and it, the second point there is that we didn't go to war really in Afghanistan. We sort of played at it. We went to war in Iraq because Saddam was such a terrible character, not because Iraq was a, a real threat to the United mm-hmm. States. I want to remind our listeners that we're talking with uh, Barry Schatz and Karen Lee, both um, decided after 9-11 to... Hmm? To get married. To get married, <laughs> that's right. And, and not more, uh, what's more, to come to Alameda of all places. 
That's uh, another story. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's, Karen, let's, uh, um, I want to start wrapping up the 9-11 portion and start yes. talking more about the African portion, but I do want to hear a little more about that story. Karen, would you share it with us? Barry really wanted to move to California, so he worked on me and worked on me and worked on and me. And she had been a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley. And, and I that's one of the one yes. of That was one of my appeals. Uh-huh. You know, I kind of started agreeing if I could find a house I liked as much as the one in Washington, which was my secret reservation. Barry had somebody who had recommended Alameda, so we said, okay, let's go look at Alameda. And the minute we drove over Grand Street, into what they call the Gold Coast, which is the 19th century town. Um, It looks just like the suburbs of Washington, and then Barry decided it looks just like the suburbs of Chicago. And it looked, like, really homey. And um, because it had people had – there were sidewalks, there were lawns. You didn't have these um, eyelids of garages staring at you as you go down the street. It looked like a pleasant little village. And, of course, going to Alameda is like driving into 1960 anyway. Um, So we found this terrific house by a fluke uh, and bought it the day before Christmas when nobody buys houses. And then we were on our way. Been happy as clams here. Yes, I love love Alameda. I, I will do anything to try to make this place better because I feel attached to it. There was Barry Schutz, who's also an active member of Alameda Community Radio's Board of Directors because he feels attached to his new home and wants to make a difference. Thanks to Barry and Karen Lee for sharing their story of 9-11 and how they came to live in Alameda. As he mentioned, Barry is an Africa specialist, and I'll talk to him in more detail about this work uh, in Southern Africa on a future show. It's a region that's particularly interesting to me as I was actually born in South Africa and lived there until I was about 19 when I left the country. I still travel back there and of course there have been all sorts of changes in that country. So um, it'd be great to have Barry Schutz back and we will talk about um, uh, Africa these days and all of the changes and what they mean for today's world. Um, Barry has insights into Mozambique and Zimbabwe particularly, and we will talk all about that. I'd also like to remember some of the families I met who lost loved ones on 9-11. As I mentioned earlier in the show, my son served in the U.S. Army for eight years and did three tours of duty, one in Afghanistan and two in Iraq, and then a third in Iraq after his army stint, after he was honorably discharged from the army. During that time, I traveled in the Middle East while, for the last 10 years. I traveled in the Middle East and around the U.S. interviewing families affected by war. My book, Long Time Passing, Mothers Speak About War and Terror, shares these stories. And one of the first women I talked to for this project was Sue Rosenblum, whose son Joshua worked for Cantor Fitzgerald in the World Trade Center. Joshua had taken a vacation to travel with his family to, uh, to Bermuda, where he planned to marry his fiancée, who also worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. So Joshua went into the office that day and was never seen again. I stayed in touch with Sue Rosenblum, and most recently I heard that her husband Richard had passed away in 2006. Sue believes he was devastated by Joshua's death and never really recovered from that. She has a new grandchild named after Joshua and says she now helps parents cope with the loss of a child. That work is, aside from her family, she says, foremost in her life. There's also Elisa Torres, who created the graphic novel American Widow. She was eight months pregnant when her husband went to work for the first time at Cantor Fitzgerald on September 10th. 
Then there are the thousands of American troops who have died in the wars conducted in the, in the name of 9-11. And let's not forget the millions of lives in Afghanistan and Iraq lost or displaced in their own countries and the countries surrounding them whose people have also undergone vast changes. Countries like Syria, huge uh, number of Iraqi refugees in uh, Damascus when I was there in 2006. Also huge numbers of Iraqis in Egypt, um, Jordan, Lebanon even has some, even though Lebanon is not very hospitable to um, uh, refugees, particularly since they have so many Palestinian refugees there. I think there's 14 camps in Lebanon alone. So all of these uh, refugees left Iraq under pressure of the war and uh, at a huge social cost to the countries surrounding them. Saudi Arabia, you may have heard, responded to the refugee influx by actually shutting them out. They erected a huge fence to keep out refugees. Now, in the U.S., fallout from the events of 9-11 include the USA Patriot Act that President George W. Bush signed into law on October 26, 2001. The 10-letter acronym USA PATRIOT stands for Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. That's the Act of 2001. In March 2007, Alameda resident, artist, and Navy veteran Michael McDonald found himself on the wrong end of the USA PATRIOT Act. But before we hear from Michael McDonald, let me remind you that this is Alameda Community Radio's News and Views. Alameda Community Radio is a forerunner to what we hope will be the low-power FM broadcast station that we hope to bring to our city. In the meantime, we're getting up and running to manage such a station, and you're invited to participate. Right now, it's an Internet-based station, but um, we're hoping at some point we can uh, work with the FCC, get a license, and start a, uh, a station that's particularly focused on Alameda. So you can learn more about this effort at our blog. I mentioned alameda-communit-radio.blogspot.org. And again, if you have comments on today's show or want to suggest interesting stories for me to cover, send an email to alameda-communityradio at gmail.com and address it to me, Susan Gallimore. So in March 2007, the USA Patriot Act landed on the doorstep of Alameda resident, artist, and Navy veteran Michael McDonald. Two members of the Secret Service arrived at his house after two or three of his neighbors and fellow residents called the U.S. Secret Service and said that McDonald was a threat to President Bush. McDonald had created a life-size carbon, uh, cardboard cutout of President George W. Bush with a kitchen knife in his forehead, and this art piece was displayed in, his front, in uh, McDonald's front yard. And I met Michael McDonald while I was um, admiring a recently uncovered mural on Haight Street on the side of a convenience store on Haight, and uh, the en entrance to the store is actually on Webster. So McDonald is restoring the mural, and uh, he and I got into a lively discussion about art and its place in our community. I invited him to sit down and to talk about both the mural and his experiences in 2007. This is Michael McDonald. Well, the mural is actually a sign. It's been a corner of advertising for probably since the turn of the century, 1900s. And uh, this is one of the signs that presented itself when they took some uh, tin material off the building. And it's an interesting sign. It's, uh, it has uh, characteristics that are certainly historic, and it's interesting that the companies are still going today. But I would say that uh, right now it's probably, probably very early to go and determine a lot about the history and all of that. But it's, it's an interesting corner, I must say. 
It's a beautiful mural, um, and you also pointed out when I stopped and talked to you that there's one on the next street, which I believe is Taylor. Mm-hmm. On, the, on Taylor at Webster, there's a Golden Bridge. Correct, yeah, Golden Bridge. I restored that sign about five years ago, and um, that was also one of these things that w- they were debating whether to keep or not because it was in such bad shape. That's a nice sign. That really is a representative of uh, the old sign style of billboards in America. Uh, this one's less so. The one on, on hate is less so. When I was talking with you in front of that, uh, it's the black and white sign, mm-hmm. I remembered that you are, uh, let me say, the infamous Michael McDonald, and you can, of course, play with that word infamous. Our show this week is about 9-11. You've had some run-ins uh, since 9-11, haven't you? I've had disagreements with the past administration, that's true, but before 9-11. <laughs> I mean, 9-11, I think, um, brought about an awful lot of different feelings for a lot of people, but uh, certainly I think the Bush-Cheney administration exploited it beyond anything. I think they're criminals. And so you were actually protesting the administration. Talk about what happened. I've been doing art installations in front of my studio for the last 15 years, and I've done quite a few that were based upon social justice and also about government and politics. I did one about George Bush, which uh, some Alameda neighbors took a disliking to and called the Secret Service, and I was detained for two hours and 45 minutes in my home. And um, they were going to take me to jail. (laughs) I had my attorney here when, when the Secret Service came, and my attorney told the Secret Service that I was to not speak to them. And then they then changed my charges right there on the spot and charged me under the Patriot Act <laughs> and threw my lawyer out of my house. They didn't give me any choice of having any kind of um, representation whatsoever. And it was very awkward because my lawyer said, do you want me to stay? And I said, I'm just going to deal with this because I didn't know what actually were the provisions of the Patriot Act other than I was fearful of what they could do. So I just went along with it. And the interview became more complex at that point. It it was interesting that they made a decision to go and actually interview me, photograph my home, do all the fingerprinting things, do all of this stuff right here, and then take it to the, uh, I believe it's the federal attorneys. They didn't give me a decision right away. It went on for about a year, and I was um, restricted from travel, and I had every single one of my records investigated from uh, medical to everything. It was handed over to the government. (laughs) It was also very difficult to get much of anything done because of that. Can you describe the artwork that the neighbors were complaining about? It was quite large, actually. It had um, many components to it, and basically the theme of the piece was... um, People are, are more outraged at the word fuck, excuse me for saying that, uh, than they are about the word war. That's what the whole thing was about. And there was a, a, just a little, um, like a little note right next to his he- uh, a George Bush's head, who was a silhouette in this whole thing, a full-size photographic silhouette of George Bush with a knife in the side of his head and an electronic mouse for a computer crawling all over him. And, it was a piece that just showed what kind of a vermin scumbag he is, but the knife was really in, shoved into the cardboard as a, as really a statement of overall anger. It had, you know, it, I don't think it was um, a direct threat to the president of the United States. I think it was a direct threat to his damn administration and everybody in it. <laughs> when um, the Secret Service came, they agreed that it was a direct threat, and 
They agreed that it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they told me to take it down, and I told them I wouldn't. Uh, who won that one? I kept it there. And then when they left the following day, I painted it all yellow for the cowards that these people are in this town for sitting there and thinking that their patriotism and their sense of what the war was about uh, was uh, interpreted as this, this piece, this art piece, as a threat to our society. The people in this town had no concept of the lies and everything else that are per perpetrated during that time, and they still don't. And I think it's a really sad, sad commentary on what's going on. When I got picked on by the Secret Service, I, it wasn't bad. I thought that it was appropriate, and I thought that what they did was uh, very professional, actually. And I felt comfortable about the whole thing. I even told them in my own living room what an idiot George Bush what is, and that their job was to defend any idiot that's sitting there. That personally, this isn't about me or George. <laughs> it's about the law. And they're just reinforcement of it. So at any point, did the um, Secret Service that was here begin to be a little more human in the way they were dealing with you? They decided not to take me to jail. They had two cars there. One was to take me to jail. The other guy was the backup was to arrest me. Um, the thing is, is after we got a conversation going and we, they looked at my home and they saw that I was doing art and that this is a First Amendment issue and that this could probably blow up and then they talked to other people. Then they went through this big, long 18-page <laughs> interview I had to do. And uh, at that point, they determined to let me stay here, but I had to call them every day. And also, I was restricted to uh, 50 miles. I couldn't come within 50 miles of Bush or Cheney, ever. So where do things stand at this point? Well, now it's pretty much over with, and, and everybody's kind of just let it go, and they've felt that my, my situation was overblown and that it was probably... Um, you know, the heat of the moment kind of thing. Everybody was re overreacting. I mean, we've had Marines come to this house and military people threatened to kill us, literally threatened to kill us. We're more fearful, actually, of the military in this town than anybody else. When you say military, you mean um, individuals, uh, off-duty individuals showing yeah. up? Oh, sure. Off-duty individuals coming to my home and threatened to kill me. More than, more than times I can actually count. And so how do they know about you? Um... Well, the, since the exhibits have been out there, I think that they just come trap bopping by and see something that's an American flag or red, white, and blue or whatever else. They're upset about it. Um, and then they come up and threaten my wife, too. If you look at the artwork that I've presented in the front of my home, I've done over 680-some-odd pieces in 15 years. One-third of them were dedicated towards social justice and, and First Amendment issues and, and issues that concern me about the Constitution and how we actually can communicate using the First Amendment. And it does push the envelope sometimes, but I do stay out of certain subjects, child abuse, those kind of things you'll never see there. There are issues that I consider more social that we should be engaged in and somebody should be saying something, and I'm one of those people. On the other hand, I do an awful lot of whimsical artwork that makes you laugh until you want to stumble. And a lot of other stuff that is just traditional artwork, maintaining the cause for tradition in art. Um, I put out those genre kind of paintings. But if you look at where my work goes, truly, I put landscapes on everything, cars, buildings, toilet seats, you name it. Wherever nature has been imposed upon, I put a landscape. And in every place I've put a landscape, I've never had graffiti on it. I've never had any destruction of my work other than 
by the school system in this town, Alameda. They destroyed every mural I put up in these, on their schools. I've had other businesses that have removed it because real estate agents couldn't sell it because they say the artwork was in the way. And actually, the blank canvas anthem, anthem of the real estate industry in this town is why we don't have that much in public art. The other thing is, is that it's, it's really kind of interesting that when I do the political things, people get all excited about it and, and, and feel that I'm actually standing there in front of them. What we see from the inside of the house is quite amazing. What my neighbors tell me about people who stop. Uh, we've actually had an AC transit bus stop out here and everybody get off. And, and with the amount of work that I've created, it's, it certainly has crossed an awful lot of broad subjects. So it's been interesting. And, and from my standpoint, it's also my community com contribution to what art is about. Your house is on um, Central Avenue. People can drop by and look at the artwork, and you, you welcome that as oh, long sure. as they... It's a legal gallery. It's a legal... Uh, I have a business license and run a business here in art, and it's, it's a legal gallery. I do it by appointment. I don't... I have never shown my work in an art gallery in my career. I've been painting for 45 years. Most of my work has always been done by commission. I always work for a client, and that's always made my life a little bit easier. But, you know, uh, living and working in art is very, very hard and very complicated. I do more of my work outside of California than I do here. And I share my art here with this community more than I have any other community I've lived in. So it's, um, I was brought to Alameda, you know, by the United States Navy in 1970. And I, I was in the Navy here for six years and um, fulfilling my obligation to the to America, what I was asked to do. I didn't run to Canada. I didn't grow my hair long. But I thought it was a, a bad mistake then, and I still do. Um, that's what brought me here. So from 70 to where we are now, I had a 10-year gap where I wasn't around here. But uh, overall, you know, I've lived in Alameda. And I still hear that crazy statement that if you weren't born here, you're not an Alamedan and all of that. And once again, that's a form of discrimination as far as I'm concerned. You know, wake up and embrace your community truly. Well, let's talk about some ideas that you have for residents giving back to the community, because what we're trying to do with Alameda Community Radio is it's a progressive show, this News and Views, and uh, we're trying to elevate the conversation and the education level around who's elected into office, why, what they represent, what their history is, and so forth. How would you encourage residents in this town to do it from your point of view? To engage, let's just say, public art. Okay, walk into City Hall. Everybody in this town, we're such a big community. Walk in there and walk up to the top floor of that building and walk to the basement. And just tell me how much public art you see in that building. The custodians of what we have for public art don't know what the hell it is and don't do anything with it. Three members on our city council penned a public art ordinance in this town and have done nothing since 1993 when they did it. Nothing really much gets done when you just stick your name on it and think that that's how you support your community. It really does take a little bit of effort, and I think that people in this town are screaming for it. We're now going into a period where the city is being cleaned up beautifully. It's, it has a very nice look. I think Park Street is very successful. I think Webster Street can be. I think that we're entering a period of beige and very, very gray colors and things where now that's a blank canvas where they should start thinking about public art. And this is a great time to do it when it's affordable. I think that artists ought to step back and quit thinking of making the instant lottery on a piece of artwork and start giving back to the community as well. There's some brilliant artists in Alameda that should step up too and start doing their work. If you walk down Webster Street alone, there's all these blank canvases everywhere. 
And there's some good artists in this town that should be representing their work here. And if it requires even donating a bit of their time, then that's community. That's what it's all about. I think that Webster Street could be a cultural street, a street where the culture could actually develop into a whole different statement for the city. And the city already recognizes that there is an identity crisis in this town. And part of it is because the arts are missing. And when you do see it, like at the South Shore, they did a beautiful job. That development company was dead on right doing what they did. And people feel a part of it more so than they ever have before. So, you know, a lot of things have to happen, certainly. I think an awful lot of people are interested in it. I've noticed just in the few days that I've been working on this sign down on uh, H Street, the people are so, oh, great. I mean, they're just so behind it. And that is an indication to me that, that they really do want to see big things happen. Um, I really appreciate your time. Thanks. And I'm going to um, ask people to go down to Haight and Webster. Uh, it's a it's a convenience store, I believe, or liquor store. It's, it's, a, a, it's a market liquor store, yeah. So it's on the corner there. And then on the, on the other street, Taylor and uh, Webster, is the Golden Bridge. And I know there's other artwork hidden underneath the, the siding that's that's been covered, uh, yeah. artwork that's been covered up with siding. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. And also, um, I've done murals on the street as well. There's other artists that are just now getting engaged in the street. So it'll be interesting to see how Webster Street develops. I think that it's a, it's, it is a blank canvas waiting to be painted. That's Alameda resident and artist Michael McDonald, who lives in his house come studio on Central Avenue. Drop by and say hello to Michael while he's restoring the gorgeous mural advertisement for black and white whiskey on, Hate St on the wall of the Haight Street convenience store at Webster. And while you're there, if it's a Tuesday or a Saturday, visit the farmer's market. It's uh, right across the street. And that's News and Views with me, Susan Gallimore, for this week. Thank you for listening. And if you want to comment on today's show, send me an email to alamedacommunityradio at gmail.com. Alamedacommunityradio, spelled out, at gmail.com. This show and all Alameda Community Radio shows are available for download from our blog, alameda-communit-radio.blogspot.com. Be sure to share this link with your friends. Again, it's alameda-communit-radio.blogspot.com. Let me spell it out. A-L-A-M-E-D-A hyphen C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T hyphen radio, R-A-D-I-O dot blogspot dot com. If you'd like to support our efforts at ACR or if you're interested in volunteering for ACR, contact us at Alameda Community Radio at gmail.com. To propose your own ACR show, download ACR's program proposal form from the blog, alameda-communit-radio.blogspot.com, and send it along with the program demo to alameda-community-radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.